Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, here, here's a good joke for those of you who like math as much as I do. What did one math book say to the other? Man, do I have problems. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Nuneman from APM American Public Media. This is the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from author Emma Straub. That'll help break the ice. Her new book, mm-hmm. The Vacationers, is on the bestseller list as we speak. Later, we'll chat with Hoop Dreams director Steve James about the late, beloved film critic Roger Ebert. Should insert a thumbs-up joke right here. That's right. Also coming up, actor Rich Summer of TV's Mad Men tells us about the sordid origins of Uno, Mm. and you'll get etiquette advice from one of our favorite guests, Queen of the Beach read, Jackie Collins. Who definitely knows about bad behavior. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The Obama administration is asking Congress to help train and equip moderate rebels battling Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Supporters of gay marriage are celebrating two Supreme Court decisions today. The United States escapes the so-called group of death. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are speaking with Lizzie O'Leary. She is the host of Marketplace Weekend, which debuts this week all across America on public radio stations, probably in your town. Lizzie, thanks for being here. What story are you going to be talking talking about this weekend, I guess, when you're not on the air. Well, I mean, with you guys, I'm going to talk about this one, hopefully very intelligently. Mm. All right. We'll we'll be the judge of that. (laughs) Okay, this is Match.com, the dating site, and Mensa, the high IQ society, partnering up to create a dating site for geniuses. So you have to be in Mensa to join this dating site? Yeah, it's like a special exclusive pool, Mensa Match. So I guess you can also, if you're already on Match, add like a little Mensa badge to your profile. Oh, you know, you are ID'd as a genius. Does it look wow. like a little nose turned up in the air? <laughs> that's how maybe I it's a little. Maybe it's a little miter. <laughs> Do smart people have trouble meeting? Oh, yeah, that's a good well, point. Because as- I wouldn't know. <laughs> Wait, I walked into that one. I guess you really did. You really did, man. If you had to ask. But so apparently smart people do have trouble meeting, at least according to one of the people who's quoted in this piece about Mensa Match. And one of the theories is that highly intellectual people feel like, you know, they're entitled. They deserve love. But Mm. maybe they're not willing to make all the compromises that Mm. go into Kind a relationship. A relationship. So they think, I'm a genius, I know what's best, so I don't need to make compromises with my partner? Or too many, you know, checklists and barriers. Oh, yeah. so their standards for who they'll date are just unreasonably high. Right. I like long walks on the beach and calculating how many grains of sand there are by using spatial geometry. <laughs> and maybe getting the Fields Medal for it, totally. <laughs> yeah, I could see where that would be a drag for a date. But the best thing about all of this, by the way, the story that was written about it on, on CNN has got like a 30 to 40 person comment thread Mm-hmm. about proper grammar and spelling. Of course. <laughs> now that's the real reason they're alone. Yeah. I'm, no, come on, if somebody can't distinguish between your and your when they're writing me a flirty right. email, no way, man. Yeah. Not going to happen. All right. Well, Lizzie, maybe you now you have a place to go. <laughs> God, uh, I sound insufferable. Lizzie O'Leary, thanks for the small talk. Thanks, guys. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you a true tale from history, then have a bartender capture its essence in the form of a cocktail. It's our semi-world-famous history lesson with booze. And we're going to start with the history this week back in 1978 in San Francisco. A familiar, super colorful symbol was unveiled for the first time. It wasn't the Deadhead logo. No way. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. 
one of the most recognizable flags in the world, doesn't represent a country. It all began in the 70s with artist Gilbert Baker. After his honorable discharge from the army, he settled in San Francisco and learned to sew. At first, he just made himself cool outfits to wear to rock shows, but then he befriended gay rights activist Harvey Milk and started making banners for protest marches. In 1978, he and Milk had an idea. The city's annual gay pride parade should have a logo. Gilbert wanted it to be positive, something natural, kind of magical, and multicolored to symbolize gay and lesbian diversity. He envisioned a rainbow. Gilbert and friends hand-dyed a thousand yards of cotton to create huge 30 by 60 foot rainbow flags. Pressing the things took hours and burned out iron after iron. But when they were unveiled before hundreds of thousands of paraders, says Gilbert, quote, everyone understood it. It was like a bolt of lightning. It changed my life forever. Within minutes, people asked where they could get a rainbow flag. Within weeks, demand was so high, Gilbert had to farm out production to a commercial company it launched his career. He went on to design banners and displays for U.S. senators, for state visits by the leaders of France and China, and for the 1985 Super Bowl. The rainbow flag design is in the public domain, but Gilbert still sells his own handmade versions and occasionally makes one you could never hang from a flagpole. In 1994, he commemorated the 25th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots by unfurling a rainbow flag a mile long. It broke the record for the biggest flag ever. So that was the history lesson. Now for a drink to pair with it. I'm joined by Johnny Raglan. He is a bartender at the Comstock Saloon in San Francisco, where the first rainbow flag was created. Johnny, it's great to have you back. Thanks, Brennan. What cocktail did this story inspire you to make? Well, I had to go to the uh, class of cocktails at Proust Cafe. Because if you really want Mm. to do homage to color and the rainbow, um, it really has to be this class of drink. So one caveat, you're not going to get this cocktail at the Comstock Saloon. Don't ask for it. There's (laughs) no way. These things take... A lot of time to prepare. Uh, so tell me about that class of drinks. I, I couldn't, I want to make sure I heard you correctly. What was it called? Uh, Pousse Café. Pousse Café. It's French. I think it means like to push the coffee. And it was probably born down in New Orleans back in the 1800s and has slowly evolved into a layered, uh, non-chilled drink that uh, is probably made most popular by like uh, the shooters like the B-52 and the Slippery Nipple and all of those uh, real classy cocktails. Surprising that this happened in New Orleans, those sorts of cocktails. <laughs> right, right, right. So what's in your drink? Well, I went to um, the, uh, I would say, the authority of uh, Pousse Cafe Recipes, Trader Vic's cocktail book that we have here at Comstock, and found a Pousse Cafe that's actually called Pousse Cafe Rainbow. So that's oh, the drink that I'm, that I'm bringing to you today. All right. Well, tell me how you make it. Cool. Well, the key with a Pousse Café is to understand the uh, density of each one of the liqueurs that you're putting into the glass. 
Hmm. So you want the heaviest stuff to go in first and the lighter stuff to continue to layer on top. You're talking about viscosity, right? Not alcohol content. Exactly. Well, it is about alcohol content as well. You know, like depending on how much alcohol is in the liqueur, the lighter it's going to be. The more water and sugar that's in the liqueur, the heavier it's going to be. So it's just relative density. So is that why it's so easy to lift martini after martini? Because it's just pure. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Here we take a a bar spoon and pour very slowly over the back of the spoon with it touched up to the side of the glass, the interior side of the glass, and slowly uh, layer the liqueurs on top. All right. And what what liqueurs... Are you going to use here? Okay, so the Pousse Café Rainbow starts off with grenadine. Mm-hmm. I think it's great to have grenadine in the glass first because your chances of getting to the bottom of the glass are pretty slim, and the <laughs> grenadine is probably going to be the worst ingredient in the drink, considering right. it's just like food-colored uh, 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 corn syrup now. All right, so, but it's just uh, the, it's there for color, though. Oh yeah, it's there for the for the brightest red you can be. Okay. Yeah, you start off with the grenadine. On top of that, you're going to float maraschino liqueur. Okay. That's number two. Number three is going to be cr- uh, green creme de menthe. Yummy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so good stuff. Um, and then uh, after that, my one of my favorite ingredients to make cocktails with yellow chartreuse is going to get floated on top. Okay. Then he puts curacao on top of that. What color is curacao? Yeah, well, curacao it comes from the island of curacao. It's an orange liqueur. Mm-hmm. And it's probably most famous because of the blue variety of curacao. Um Per Vic's recipe, I'm going to say he was using a more traditional curacao, like orange, orange-colored curacao. And then on top of that, we're floating brandy. Whoa. So that's a six-part six <laughs> cafe, but I've added another layer. Okay. In between the grenadine and the maraschino liqueur and the bottom of the glass, we're going to float a little bit of Bowles, Lucas Bowles yogurt liqueur. Wow. Mm-hmm. Is that is that for color, or is that the homage, like a little nod to Harvey Milk's role in this? It's a, that's exactly right. It's my homage and a nod to Harvey Milk. Exactly. Yes. Thank you. You're, yes. you're brilliant, Brennan. You're brilliant. <laughs> I've, done, I've done this before, Johnny. Um, but the key, with, the key with drinking a Pousse Cafe is to drink it slowly, layer by layer. So if you like everything that you put in the Pousse Cafe, there really shouldn't be anything wrong with the drink. Well, that runs counter to the idea of integration, don't you think? Like, isn't the end goal to mix this up, and so it's all one beautiful cocktail life? Um, it's it's going to be as gray as, as, as the streets <laughs> of San Francisco, honestly, <laughs> if you do that. And so I would let the colors stand out on their own and let them uh, stay together in the glass. And Rico, quick note, that mile-long rainbow flag, yeah. it was the biggest flag ever at the time, Uh-oh. but the record today is held by a flag of Qatar that got unveiled last year. It was bigger than a mile? It was 19 soccer fields long. <laughs> Almost wow. as long as the cocktail we just heard about must be. <laughs> That's I right. Just... There were lots of layers of alcohol in It's that a thing. doozy. And people, if you can't remember all the ingredients in that cocktail, you can find the recipe at dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, and before we go any further, we have an important matter that we need to attend to. That's right. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, the actor-comedian Jenny Slate spoke with us about her new movie, Obvious Child. It's a romantic comedy centered around a complicated and funny young woman who decides to have an abortion. We got several letters about the interview, but they weren't about the film's storyline. Instead, you all took issue with this. Palm trees are not indigenous to California. 
I was I was aware of that. Yeah. But where they they're from Spain, is that right? I think so. Everyone thinks of like Hollywood as like palm trees and stuff, but it's actually just a desert dressed up in someone else's trees. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Palm trees became the flashpoint of a heated debate. Man. Listener John Pierce wrote, "Can't believe neither of you responded skeptically to the idea that there are no native California palms." Uh, this must have struck more than a few Californians and botanists as curious. And listener James Thompson added, quote, I'm no botanist, but I've lived in SoCal long enough to know there is a type of palm native to California. So in the face of the outcry, we called an authority. This is uh, Ranger Steve Beer, and you're talking to Anza Borrego Desert State Park in Southern California. Washingtonia filifera is the only native palm found in the western United States. And most of those grow right here in the desert. A lot of people think that all the palm trees come from foreign lands and they're imported in. We even have a college course that was taught here up until recently. Uh, the students there were told that the palms were not native. But I can assure you that uh, Washingtonia filifera, the California fan palm, has been here anywhere between 8 and 20 million years. So, all right, we were wrong. But only by about 20 million years or so. Yeah, I do want to note that those native palms don't seem to grow in Hollywood, though. So that part of Jenny's joke was correct. See, Jenny, we won't leave you out the dry. Stand by Uh, you. Thanks, listeners, for your close listening. We expect nothing less. Drop us a line anytime. The email is dinnerparty at americanpublicmedia.org. All right, and coming up, Hoop Dreams director Steve James remembers the most influential film critic of our time. And later, madman Rich Summer smokes 500 cigarettes and lives to tell us about it. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, we've got a treat for you. Our conversations with saucy novelist Jackie Collins and actor Rich Summer, recorded live on stage. And in a few minutes, author Lauren Owen reads from her new novel, The Quick. But first, it's not a party till there's music playing. Yes, and for that, we turn to heavy rock trio Zigzags. Since forming in L.A. in 2010, they've released a slew of singles, including one with Iggy Pop, Their debut album just came out. Here they are with a party playlist. Hi, we're Zigzags. My name is Patrick. You play bass and you sing. I play bass and I sing. My name's Jed. I play guitar and sing. My name's Bobby. I drum and I sing in Zigzags. We have a new album coming out on In The Red Records. It's called Self-Titled. And here is our dinner party soundtrack. This is Jed and our first track is a song called Decadence by Kevin Ayers, uh, who was a kind of a weird psychedelic pioneer. Watch her out there on display, dancing in her sleepy way. And the song is interesting because it, it, it's a really, really slow, mellow buildup. And it'd be a good thing for people to, you know, have a conversation to. And then if you're having like a really boring conversation with somebody, the drums sort of kick in. And it gets like kind of spacey and super weird and really groovy and you can kind of just like listen to the song and nod your head with your mouth open like you're paying attention to the person that you're talking to when you're really not. This is Bobby. Uh, my choice would be Larry John Wilson, the tune "Oh Whoopi River Bottomland." Right, right in the very beginning, he does this sort of priest-like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
about a little rhythm. There's something about that that just kind of, you know, wets your palate a bit. This low-rent land has turned to sand And I'd understood about all I can of leaving It's sort of hospitable in a way to listen to. You know, it's kind of pleasing to your ears, but it's, it's somehow a little bit goofy and soulful. Land's brought me pain and sorrow Trailways coming through the bar I'm leaving here as soon as I can, Lord From the hook of my lane This is Patrick, and uh, for the final selection, uh, I chose Terry Reed's song called Faith to Arise. They call him Super Lungs. Super Lungs, yeah. He just, he just sings his, you know, tail off. The song from what I can tell, is about being on tour. I, I kind of always like the line where he's just like, you know, can't wait to get back home. It works at a dinner party, because if you play it at the end of the night, it kind of gets everyone going like, oh, this is cool, and then they start thinking about, oh man, it would be kind of good to get back home. And that's our soundtrack, uh, which is pretty mellow compared to what we normally do on stage. I think when you're like in your practice space a few times a week, four hours at a time, just pummeling each other's brains in with sonic noise, you don't really want to take your work home with you. <laughs> I think that if we were going to put a, one of our tunes on for a, a dinner party, we would definitely want to play Brain Dead Warrior. song that you would uh, listen to when you were like a, a kid and you're all having a sleepover and you're going to like stay up all night and then you're going to watch Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling at two in the morning after Headbangers Ball and you're just going to like, oh man, there's still pizza left in the fridge. It's perfect for that. It's the after party soundtrack. A dinner party soundtrack courtesy of Bobby Martin, Jed Mayhew, and Patrick McCarthy. Their band is called Zigzags. Their self-titled debut album just came out on In the Red Records. I love it. This sounds more like music for a food fight. Yeah. <laughs> than a party. <laughs> I have a feeling they'd be cool with that, though. That's true. And now, time for Chattering Class, where we're schooled by an expert in a party-worthy topic. Our topic today is the late and beloved film critic Roger Ebert. And our teacher is documentarian Steve James. His film Hoop Dreams is considered one of the greatest films of the 90s and among the best documentaries ever. Ebert himself called it, quote, one of the great movie-going experiences of my lifetime. James's inspiring new movie is about Ebert and includes footage shot in the weeks just before the man's death. It's called Life Itself. And Steve, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. So you and Ebert, you're both prominent in the Chicago film scene. Both of you are kind of civil rights champions. It doesn't surprise me you collaborated on this film, but when did you first meet? 
Yeah, I first met Roger in a sense before he met me, which is I saw his show back in the late 70s. He and Gene Siskel would basically review movies. Yeah. I kind of tripped across it one Sunday afternoon, you know, on TV, and I was like, well, what is this? And I remember my first thought was, two guys from Chicago? Yeah. Talking about movies? <laughs> yeah, right. Why not Hollywood? Yeah, or New York or, you know, Paris, France. Sure. I mean, come on. But then as I watched the show, I got hooked by it, and I really sort of recognized its brilliance, which was, you know, two very smart guys, very combative. <laughs> and yet, you know, the, the, the level of insight they were able to bring to the movies they were discussing in a very short period of time is not something that's easy to do at right. all. So then when I moved to Chicago a few years after that, uh, I started reading Roger in the newspaper because, you know, this was all before the Internet. So you had to live in the city to actually read the paper. Oh, my gosh. Uh, crazy. I know. Hard to believe. But so I started reading his reviews and I, and I was first struck by the fact that I'd get the Friday paper and there would be like eight reviews from him, uh, all of them full on <laughs> review. It's like, don't they have another critic? <laughs> so I marveled at And so he became one of my go to guys in terms of movies, you know, when they would come out every week. Yeah. What do you think it is about his writing among all critics that led people to take his reviews so seriously? Well, you know, when Roger inherited this job, when it was really not a plum job back in 1967, he loved movies, but he was by no means an expert. And he determined from the start, he said, basically, look, I'm going to write reviews of these movies from the point of view of how they made me feel. Like, what did it do to me as a person sitting in a theater watching a movie? You always felt Roger the person. Mm. You know, if he was writing about a romantic comedy, uh, he right. might make an observation about love in his own life in, mm -hmm. in a kind of mm -hmm. wry and sometimes humorous way or an insightful way. That was Roger, and I think that's what people connected with, and, and the fact that you never felt like he was looking down at you, the reader. Yeah. I, I think a key, actually, is that he was willing to say that he didn't always get why a film was working. Like, there's a clip yes. in the film of his review of an Ingmar Bergman film, and he says it affects him, I think this is a quote, in ways I don't fully understand. Exactly. He was so humble in, in the way in which he approached movies, and I think it's one of the reasons that filmmakers loved Roger, you always felt with Roger that he came to a movie humbly wanting to love it. Yeah, right. He might not, and then if he didn't, <laughs> look out. There's a whole books of what happened when he didn't. <laughs> yeah, I hated, hated, hated your movie. Is the title is, of is one of the one of the collections. <laughs> I was, uh, you know, uh, I grew up watching him. I think a lot of people were aware of him, maybe one of the most visible critics ever. But I was still surprised to learn almost anything about his personality, especially at the beginning of his career. I always thought of him as my genial movie nerd uncle. But yeah. he was this very hard-drinking Chicago newspaper man, kind of a tough guy. Well, you know, here's the thing. I, Bill Knack, his friend from college days and remained his friend for 50 years, said that Roger was the principal actor, director of his own movie, of his life. And so, like, when he went to Chicago and got a job as a first as a beat reporter and then a critic, he took on the persona of what he thought a newspaper man was mm -hmm. to be, which was, and that included hard drinking, you know, until the wee hours of the morning and telling stories and, and, and swapping insults. And... <laughs> And then, of course, it became too much for him. But, you know, it steeled him and prepared him for what was to come in his life in a lot of ways, including, of course, uh, you know, Gene Siskel. 
Oh, yeah. You know, the kind of combative relationship he had with him. Yeah. Benji the Hunted exhausted me. This is the first time I wanted to tell a dog to slow down and stop to smell the flowers. I don't know, Gene. Your review is the typical sort of blase, sophisticated, cynical review. I'll take the word sophisticated. Expect, I would expect from an adult. Well, you're wrapping yourself in, in the flag of children, and wrapping I'm saying... Wrapping yourself in the flag of the sophisticated film no, critic boredom. who's seen it all. No, boredom. Boredom with I Benji running. I don't think running. that any child is going to be bored by this it movie. It was not, you know, gentlemanly. It was not, ah, oh, well, I see you have a good point. It was, I'm going to crush you. I want to, since we mentioned Siskel, you, the thing that blew my mind, you say that <laughs> Siskel was a, kind of adopted by Hugh Hefner. Yeah. And he hung out with him on the Playboy bunny jet. Yeah. The had, pictures are there to prove it. Had you any idea before you made this movie of that? No. And, and in fact, I couldn't imagine uh, anything more unlikely yeah. than Gene Siskel. As his wife Marlene says in the movie, you know, Roger wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and, and you know, loved big-breasted women. Gene actually <laughs> lived the life for a while. And I, we found those pictures. Those pictures are actually from Hugh's private collection. That is unbelievable. I did actually, I'm glad you brought up Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. This is, for those who don't know, the, this crazy cult exploitation film by Russ Meyer that Roger Ebert scripted, I think the only movie that he ever wrote. No, he, the, wrote, he wrote another one that didn't get made. It was called Beyond the Valley of the Super Vixens. <laughs> <laughs> what did Roger think about the kind of lasting use of his signature line from that film, this is my happening and it freaks me out? Oh, I think he was thrilled, absolutely thrilled. In fact, Roger was so proud of that movie. He always loved to quote that Richard Corliss put it on his top 10 list as one of the best films of the decade and ignored what Gene wrote about the film, which was, it was about as sexy as a padded bra. He just conveniently forgot that part. Yes. Gene didn't let him forget it, but... <laughs> so there's a lot of stuff in the film that's about this kind of very funny and, in many cases, heartwarming stuff from his life. But he, of course, contracted cancer. He lost his voice and actually a good part of his face to the disease. And then while you were filming, he got a diagnosis that meant essentially that you were making a film about his death. So now you have a finite time to learn from him. You have to pare down your questions to the most essential. How did you deal with that? Well, honestly, I didn't do a, a particularly good job of prioritizing because, in fact, we kept expecting that he was going to recover and go home because Chaz really believed that he was going to get past all this, his wife Chaz. And as he says in his memoir, you know, she was like a wind pushing him back from the grave. She had rescued him so many times. So when she told me, it's like, we're going to get through this and he's going to be fine again. I, I mean, I believed it just like she believed it. Well, I found the movie very touching anyway, but I can also imagine, you know, this is kind of a testament to an important guy in your life. Is there anything that you left out of the movie that you now wish you had put in? Well, there are a lot of things that could have been in the film, but the one thing that's that's bedeviling me now that would have been so easy to put in the film that I didn't is that in the interview I did with her, Chaz told us about how when she first met Roger, she wasn't, you know, it wasn't like he was some big star to her. She knew about the show, but when she watched the show, she actually agreed with Gene more so than Roger. <laughs> Why is that not in the movie, right? I mean, it would have been perfect. 
And Brendan, even people who maybe aren't familiar with Ebert's work should really, I think, see this film anyway. He was just a fascinating character, and I found the movie really inspiring. Yeah, I'm not sure I can relate to a movie about a guy who had an art show and argued with his co-host all the time. (laughs) I think it'll speak to you, ultimately. No, it won't. (laughs) Time to eavesdrop. The debut novel from British writer Lauren Owen has earned raves from the likes of the New York Times Book Review and others. In a sea of light summer reading, it's a ray of darkness. Today we overhear an excerpt. Hi, I'm Lauren Owen. My debut novel, The Quick, has just been released. It's a gothic supernatural tale set in Victorian England. It's about a woman called Charlotte who is searching for her brother, James, who has gone missing under very mysterious circumstances. The novel begins in a remote country house in Yorkshire where James and Charlotte are growing up almost entirely alone. There were owls in the nursery when James was a boy. The room was papered in a pattern of winding branches, amongst which great green parent owls perched in identical courting couples. Beneath each pair, a trio of green owlets huddled, their sharp beaks slightly ajar. When he was alone in the nursery, James thought he could hear the owls chatter together softly, like monkeys, scratching and scratching their claws against the endless green branches. But when Charlotte was there, they were quiet, because she had told them that if they did not behave, she would get her box of watercolours and paint out their eyes. At night, James would hear the real owls screech outside, and imagine them gliding through the dark. And sometimes there was a noise from the house itself, a whispering, creaking sound, as if the walls were sighing. Often he would slip out of bed and down the corridor to Charlotte's room. Charlotte would always be sound asleep. James would slip under the blankets and lie down, topsy-turvy, with his head at the bottom of the bed, his feet pressed against her back until they grew warm. They would lie all night like that, snug as the pair of pistols that lived in the blue-lined case in Father's study. When Father had left Charlotte and James at Askew after Mother's death, he had said that he would make all the proper arrangements. Then they did not hear from him for a long while. Eventually, he wrote that he'd engaged a governess, but months went by and she did not appear. It was a health, the housekeeper, Mrs Rowley said, sounding rather scornful. A year passed. Then another. So Charlotte did her best. They would have to be brave, she told James, and she devised ordeals for them to perform. Walking down one of the long corridors alone after dark, or keeping one's head under the bathwater for a minute at a time. Or, this was the worst of all, shutting oneself in the priest hall in the library. Priest Hall was a place where rich Catholic families could conceal their priests from the authorities during the reign of the Protestant Elizabeth I. It was frightening inside, stuffy and smelling of wood and polish. The door to the priest hall was hidden. It opened with a secret spring concealed behind a dummy book. The false spine was scruffy, claret-coloured leather, faded from the touch of many hands. If you didn't know which one it was, you might never find it. From inside the priest hall, there was no way of getting out again. You passed the ordeal if you didn't scream for help. 
When the door was shut, it was so close to your face that it felt difficult to breathe. There was no light. It felt as if everyone outside had gone away, and there would be no one ever coming to let you out. It was the best ordeal of all, and would make you the bravest, Charlotte said. And this was good, because if you did enough ordeals, you'd be grown up. Lauren Owen, her debut novel, The Quick, was just released in the United States. That piece was edited for time. You can find the whole passage on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, we're going to take a short break. Coming up, we've got two interviews recorded live on stage just last week. Best-selling author Jackie Collins dishes out foolproof excuses. And Rich Summer reflects on his role in Mad Men and the history of the card game Uno. It involves cocaine. Seriously, when the Dinner Party Download returns. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Rico Galliana. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And last weekend, we threw a dinner party, kind of for real. Yeah. With radio station KPCC, we did a sold-out live show at the Moss Theater at New Road School in Santa Monica, California. And it was great. We sipped cocktails, grilled cheese sandwiches were consumed. Comedian Moshe Kasher told an amazing story that is completely unairable (laughs) on public radio. That is correct. You'll have to wait to read that in his forthcoming book. We also had author Jackie Collins answer our audience's etiquette questions. You'll hear that in a few minutes. But first, you're going to hear us speak with the evening's guest of honor, actor Rich Summer. That's right. He appeared on Broadway in a revival of the play Harvey. He co-starred in the film The Devil Wears Prada and on episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm and The Office. But he's best known as the perennially underappreciated TV advertising guy Harry Crane on the hit AMC show Mad Men. Our live audience was exceedingly pleased to see him. Mr. Rich Summer. Rich Summer. Look at us. Look at him. Oh, happy to be here. Happy to have you here. And your character, Harry Crane, he's gotten more interesting this season. He's always been interesting, but he he was kind of meek, and then he's kind of become a little more powerful. Yeah, he seems to have sort of um, uh, really gotten uh, some Yeah. Yeah, We'll believe that. So you've been doing this for for years. At what point were you as an actor like, oh, cool, I'm going to continue to be on this show? When did you know your character was going to stick around? Well, never. I was always... (laughs) terrified that with each script, you know, we might open it and find out that Harry uh, gets his just desserts and, and is fired or uh, at least relocated. What is that like? Basically, your fate is being decided by this group of writers that at any day can, you know, stop this portion of your career. Yeah, well, it's awful. Um, <laughs> there's, a, I, I mean, I, but that's sort of the nature of the um, job that I chose, which is to put my entire fate in the hands of other people. <laughs> I have very little control over what happens. The next project, weirdly, is a writing gig. That's That's right. Interesting. (laughs) Well, we have a clip. They do some good things for you, as this clip will demonstrate. I think in this clip, Harry, for once, gives the show's lead character, Don, information that Don really needs. We go back a long way, don't we? We do. Well, I'm going to make sure that you're still important. I don't know how. It's going to take some thought. It's going to take some major brain power. In fact, you might have to figure it out. I think the solution here is not to get rid of you. You should be in L.A. 
Your wife's out here. Ted Shaw is useless. Useless. What solution? Oh, this is the final solution. Cutler and Lou are pursuing Commander. Commander who? No, Commander Cigarettes. Philip Morris. I think they're pretty sure that they can land it, and you'll have to go. How long has this been going on? Is there work? Don't make me sorry I told you. All right. That's actually a big deal moment in, those, in that series. Yeah, yeah. I, I was, I mean, I was obviously very excited when I saw that scene. I, I love any time that I've gotten to have one-on-one scenes with John, but really only been a, a small handful. But they all have ended up being sort of, or at least two of them. That one ended up being sort of a pivotal moment for Don, and the other was at the end of the first season when Harry sort of inadvertently gives Don the, at least the seed that becomes the carousel speech, which is sort of like the most uh, well-known moment from the show. This is true. We did want to ask, by the way, one question about that scene. So, you know, you're drinking in that scene. That happens occasionally on Mad Men. Yes. What what are you actually drinking? Because God knows it can't be booze. Can't it be booze? Um, Sometimes it's... Okay, uh, 98% of the time it is like a watered-down iced tea or like a watered-down Diet Coke. But, uh, you know, I mean, through no fault of the producers or anyone who works for AMC or Lionsgate, um, there have been times that I perhaps have found my way to a That's alcoholic beverage <laughs> the, in, in there. There was, one scene, there was one scene in particular that during uh, the first season, uh, we go to PJ Clark's in New York and we are all doing the twist and all of this and there's this moment where Pete Campbell and I finish a beer and I say I'm going back to the well and Vinny and I found some real beer and it's the first time that I ever and only time I'm happy to say uh, missed a cue for lack of sobriety Um, we we had done several takes and finally I was sitting there and sort of listening to the music looking around and I heard the director Phil Abraham say Rich hey Rich I said yeah he said uh, are you going to go is it now? <laughs> and then I did my line and uh, switched from the real So beer. it wouldn't have been the writer's fault if you lost your job then. That's right? correct. Yeah. That would have been earned. So right. <laughs> Mad Men is almost over. I mean, they're dragging it out. I mean, yeah, right? What's the ratio of sad to relief are you feeling? I mean, for me personally, I, I, I don't know if I can speak for every single person, but I can speak for most of us and say it's a very high sad to relief ratio. Um, we're really, really bummed. It's a really tight group. And I yeah. think that all of us are aware of the fact that even if somehow we were to find ourselves on another show, it would neither be uh, the same sort of group uh, nor the same sort of storytelling that we've, we've been fortunate enough to be a part of. We've, we've heard that there's a place, is it called a porch or something like that where you guys all hang out? Our base camp, yeah, base camp. You know, it's where the, right outside of the hair and makeup trailers and on most sets, you come out, you do your hair and makeup, you go back to your trailer and you wait for them to come and say, we're ready for you. But at this show, um, no one ever spends any time in their trailers. It's a very social place and so the, the production uh, caught on to that and so each year they've given us a gift of a base camp enhancement and now what started as literally oh, a little block of cement is now... Compound. It's a two-level uh, deck. And on the top deck, there's lounge seating for 12 with a fire pit. And then down here on this one is a game table, 
with uh, you know cribbage and, and dominoes and it's like and Silicon Valley. It's yeah. <laughs> it sounds like, like Facebook. Ping pong. That's right. You work yeah. at. That's right. We don't right. eat food. We drink Soylent. That's right. <laughs> that is um, incredible. All right. Well, you're on our show, so we have to ask you our two standard questions. Mm. Of course. And the first question is, what question are you tired of being asked? I will not uh, miss being asked if we are smoking real cigarettes on the show. Every interview, with the exception of this one, uh, we've been asked right, that. We did right. the booze thing. We went the, the other yeah, way. No, 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 booze, that's a curveball. It's the cigarettes. <laughs> that they but are but you know asking. the point of this question is for you to give us that answer, because not oh, all of us know uh, that. So. Yeah. No, they are not real cigarettes. You'll be <laughs> oh, that's crazy. You know, and shocked, I'm sure. They are not real cigarettes. It's California workplace law. Although I will say that on the pilot, they were real cigarettes, because we were in New York, and also none of us knew that we would, uh, it was my first job, really, so I did not know that I would be smoking, uh, over the course of the day, 500 cigarettes. <laughs> uh, and so... Uh, and you're still crazy. here to speak yes, to us, I, amazing. I made it to here somehow. All right, well, our second question is kind of the flip. Tell us something we don't know, and this can be about yourself or about anything on Earth. Okay, this is a tough one. I'm gonna, I wanna try and t say this concisely because I know we're gonna be on the radio, but okay. um, this is something you don't know. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big board game nerd, and uh, I am a, woo, hey, woo. And um, yeah. part of that is sort of, I started by being a, a big fan of the card game Uno, and I really got to know the history of the card game Uno. It was invented in 1971 by Merle and Marie Robbins and their son Ray. Merle was a barber in uh, Redding, Ohio. Wow. Can we get Michelle Philippi out here, by the way? Just to... He spent $8,000 to make 5,000 original decks. Robert Tezak, who was a funeral parlor owner in Joliet, Illinois, bought one of the decks, came over and said, I'd like to buy your game. Bought it, founded International Games, which then became a huge success. Everything that we know about Uno from like the early 80s is from International Games. Tezak then, this is all alleged, but he <laughs> allegedly was either, and it's conflicting reports, smuggling cocaine in between decks of Uno what? to China. Wow, or, draw four. Or was doing a, a ton of cocaine <laughs> himself. Either way, um, the building that housed all of the evidence burned down. He was found guilty of arson, <laughs> oh my. went to prison for arson, never for the other thing, was away for 11 years, got out in like 2001 or two or so, and then just last year was headed back to prison for not paying on the fines that he had been paying because he says he's out of money because all the Uno millions are gone. Even though he drives still his mother's car, which has the license plate Mr. Uno on it. <laughs> um, that's all I've got. Wow. wow. That's all. That's all. Well, Man. So, so if you, if you, if you don't get another TV show, you can be a docent at a nerd museum. That's yeah, crazy. that's great. That's crazy. God bless you, Rich Summer. Thanks so much. Thank for you, Thank you, Rich Summer, ladies and gentlemen. Rich Summer, we interviewed him live last week in Santa Monica, California. Yeah. And by the way, Rich is not only a great guest of honor and clearly knows a lot about history, but he's also a cocktail enthusiast. Yeah. So basically, he could be the guest for every segment of our program. <laughs> That's true. And actually, later that night, he stuck around for the etiquette segment as well. Oh, my God. Is he going to try to host our show? I'm really worried about Rich. <laughs> anyway, yes, our audience gave us their questions about how to behave, and Rich remained on stage to answer them alongside our etiquette expert, Miss Jackie Collins. That's right. She's the author of 29 spicy, best-selling novels. Man. Over 500 million copies of her books have been sold. Her latest is a cookbook themed after her character, Lucky Santangelo, the daughter of a mobster, I welcome Jackie to the stage like this. Please welcome Jackie Collins. Yeah. 
It's so good to be here. So tell people who maybe don't know who yeah. Lucky, about Lucky Santangelo. Oh, she's a character that I've written about in seven books and uh, 10 hours of prime time on NBC television. And she's a great character, ladies, because she's a strong, very positive woman. And when I was a kid growing up, the women were doing nothing. They were in the bedroom or the kitchen, so it was sex or cooking, and that was it. So I wanted to create a really strong heroine who could kick some ass. <laughs> yeah. And now you can put out the cookbook. You said that about Fifty Shades of Grey. You said, I want, I, want, I want a woman who kicks ass instead of gets her ass kicked, I think. Yes, yes. Yeah. There are some that would say that a cookbook would be an odd choice. It's not the first thing that comes to mind. But it's our understanding, and tell us if our research is wrong, but uh, you actually cook for your kids every day. When I they do, were yeah. Up. I have three daughters who are all strong women. I don't cook every day. I cook at Christmas. I cook for 40 people. <laughs> well, every day is I Christmas cook, at your this house. This Christmas, I cook yeah. for 40 people all by myself. Oh, my God. Yeah. So that was fun. No, there's a lot of good recipes. I recommend the oyster Viagra recipe. Yeah, exactly. it's pretty good. It's a really good salad. It's stirred with a gun. You know, I call it decadent and delicious because so many cookbooks are so bloody healthy. You know what I mean? You may as well have fun if you're going to cook, be in yeah. the kitchen. Talk to Rich, he smokes. I mean, he's going to enjoy yeah. this cookbook. Oh, My character, and... Harry Crane, smokes. You know, do you want to hear a bit of trivia? Elizabeth Moss was in my miniseries, Lucky Chances, and she played Lucky as a five-year-old. Really? Yeah, yeah, she sat by the pool and screamed as she found her mother's body lying <laughs> floating. <laughs> That's where it began. Well, you have a job to do here. Okay. You're here to answer um, our audience's etiquette questions. Yes. And uh, we told folks coming tonight to submit their questions. We've selected them and let them know. The first one, Good. Chris Conway. Is Chris yes. Conway out there? Chris, how you doing? Where, where, you got the mic? Hey, how's it going? Hey, hey. hey. Big fan. Oh, good, because we're about to embarrass you terribly. <laughs> uh, this question's about buffets. So the question is, if there's a party, like a work party, for example, and you know there's going to be a buffet, and you're super jazzed about the food, and you show up early, are you allowed to go back for seconds before all of your coworkers have arrived? So, yeah. Mm. All right. No, you're not. That's called greedy. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. No, it's totally greedy. I mean, I always try to get to the buffet line first anyway. Yeah. Okay. But you have to be polite and wait till everybody's got their food, and then you can go back and, like, clear up. But he arrived first. He was the best guest. He showed up right on time, and everybody else kind of blew it off. Yeah, but then How he do you gets, know that? He gets first swing at second round. Not to give stuff away. Her, his email address was UCLA, so you're a student. You're a starving... Uh, starving grad student, yeah. Grad. Oh, yeah. That's a little less okay. <laughs> You can get a grant to eat. <laughs> but if you were undergrad, then just eat as much as you possibly can. All right, maybe maybe Jackie right. will invite you over for Christmas. For I don't think so. All no. right. <laughs> well, someone's going to be hungry. Uh, Chris, that's your answer. Sorry, All we right, can't change God. it. All right, thank All you. Right, Thanks, Chris. Okay. We're looking for Katie Burbank. A woman named after an entire section of town. She's so exciting, I'm guessing. Oh, oh there you are. Hello. How do you politely decline a request for a ride to or from the airport? Yep. Big deal in Los Angeles. Uh, well, you know they're getting a train that's going to go straight to the airport. Oh, Did yes. you know that? Oh, all right. It's building it now. Uh -huh. um, I so until then. I have to say, 
I, I mean, you have to say, I'm so sorry. I would really love to take you to the airport, but, you know, my brother just got engaged and I have to go over to their house to celebrate. Basically <laughs> lie. Yeah. Good one. What if you don't have a brother? <laughs> well, you know, if, they, if you don't have a brother, then make it a cousin. <laughs> Everybody has cousins. I kind of like you could just say, you know they're building a train to the airport. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll definitely lead with that next time. You know there's a thing called Uber, right? It is true, though, in L.A., that is, like, the biggest... Because you're putting somebody on the spot. Nobody... You know the answer is, no, I don't want to take you to the airport because I freaking hate that airport. Yes. I thought your cousin was engaged. (laughs) (laughs) Learning so much tonight. All right, right. Katie, that's your answer. Does that answer your question? Yeah. I can use either of those. Okay. Or I'll just divert to Uber. (laughs) Cousin up. Thank you, Katie. Thanks, Katie. question. All right, this next one comes from Manuel Guzman. Somebody get that man a mic. You want me to read it? Okay, this is a good question, but we're gonna get a mic to you. All right, here we go. It is, uh, if you arrive at a dinner party with your spouse or significant other, and you spot someone with whom you previously had a secret liaison. Whoa. Dang. Is it, it, no, no, this is the best part of the question. Is it up. poor form to introduce your present companion to the latter? <laughs> That is a man who's read some Jackie Collins books, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I think, yeah, yeah. you know, if you want to make him jealous, then you definitely introduce him. Mm. But it's a secret liaison they don't know. Well, if you're with somebody that you're kind of bored with, then you take the secret liaison and you say, let's just catch up, and you go in the bathroom and you have great sex, and you don't tell him. Wow. I love your answer. It's like lying, great sex. Yeah. (laughs) Great sex. It's like college. Yeah. yeah. Or something like I think that, that would work. Um, yeah. I like how you asked this question, Manuel. You asked, uh, is it poor form? <laughs> it was You're poor form to it. have a secret liaison. Yeah. Well, you know, th- things happen in the past, and All right. you know, a gentleman does have his secrets. <laughs> do, do you, do you Not anymore, have your dude. secrets? No, 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 no. This is strictly hypothetical. Oh, yeah. okay. Because this is nationally broadcast. Yeah. yeah. And this isn't radio, like, these people can see you. Yeah. <laughs> It's pretty specific for a purely hypothetical question. Yeah, yeah. please insert the black bar over my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, do you, does that give you some... I guess, so have sex, I think is the... Yeah. Is the... <laughs> Just have sex, lie. Works for me. All right. Okay. <laughs> Author Jackie Collins, her latest is a cookbook, therefore it is literally spicy. It's called The Lucky Santangelo Cookbook. And we had that conversation with her live last week at the Moss Theater at New Road School in Santa Monica, California. That show was presented by LA radio station KPCC. Great. And if you'd like us to do something similar in your town, give us a shout. Please do. But meanwhile, that is the dinner party download for this week. Yeah, I'm sorry. Jackson Musker is our associate producer. Brittany Martin provides digital assistance. Esther Mania is our intern. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. Special thanks to John Cohn, his team at KPCC, Jazz Sawyer, James Delahousey, and Brendan Willard. We're going to miss you till next week, but you don't ever need to miss us. You can sign up for our podcast and you'll get every episode plus specials like the extended interview we just uploaded with Steve Martin. And you can always keep up with us on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is dinnerpartydnld. See you everywhere. Bon appetit.